We're going to be in Jeremiah. Man, I, I've been thinking about this year for a, a long time. And I was just so struck recently, though, by what this year is going to hold for so many of you. Um, I'm not going to do show of hands. We have people who are going to graduate this year. We have people who are getting married this year. We have people who are having babies this year. We have people who are retiring this year. And then some of you are also like, well, nothing's happened for me this year. This year. And the truth is that that doesn't have to be your year. So as we kind of step into Jeremiah, could you just kind of have a frame for your expectations of what God is going to do in 2024 in your life? Because I think it could be a whole lot more than that. I would love for you to get a vision for the kind of transformation that God wants to do, the healing, the freedom that he could bring, the vocation, the calling that he could bring. The truth is, it's not just, you know, birth and graduation and retirement. It's also going to be suffering and sickness. It's going to be loss. It's going to be death. And we can't predict those. Those aren't on the calendar. We don't know they're coming up. But this year is going to be filled with opportunities for the Lord to do some amazing work in your heart. That's really where I want to go today. There's a, a commitment that I've made. Uh, this year is going to be a year in the prophets. And you're like, what? <laughs> it's a little intimidating for me personally. Um, it's really exciting for me personally. A year in the prophets. Now, I think at least one series will be an exception to that, and you'll know it when you see it. But I think this is a year where we need to hear the prophets. Just, here's just one fact about 2024 that you may or may not know. In Tennessee, our primary election is in March. And our national presidential election is in November. And we are a church that is unified in Christ and filled by the Spirit before, during, and after those events. And so I think we need to hear a word about justice and mercy this year from God, and the prophets are a great voice for that. We also need to hear a word about what God is doing in the midst of Babylon, and th that's what we're going to be looking at really all year. There's going to be about 10 different series that are taken from the prophets to help us kind of get anchored on a foundation in Scripture with a prophetic voice for really confusing times. When the world is at war, when people are anxious and overwhelmed, and when our own families are confused about what to do, when our church has the potential and the temptation to be divided, I think the prophets have something good for us. And so today we're starting a year in the prophets in, in Jeremiah uh, today. This series is really about the church that we're called to be. I've, I've called it a, a house of prayer for all nations. Now, last year, I talked about a house of prayer, and really, our, our whole vision for the church last year was to become a house of prayer. Year one, as a church, we're two years old, right? Year one, as a church, was really about becoming a house. Do you, anybody here know the Greek word for house? Okay, it was about becoming an oikos, yeah, a, a family, a household, a, a people, and to go from nothing into a people is, is an amazing work of God. Year two was about not just becoming a house, but a house of prayer. And if the first year was about an in journey, this one was about an up journey. It's where we started as a church practicing prayer and fasting. It's where we started seeking the Spirit in new ways. It's where we launched our freedom prayer ministry and we built a freedom prayer team. So this year is a house of prayer for all nations. I really want to talk about more of this year in the next couple of weeks. But today it's, it's really just... What is the, what's the house that we're called to be? What's the church that we're called to be? 
And the mission of Oikos Church, and you probably have seen this, you've, you've heard it, but our mission is to see people deeply transformed by God's grace through the gospel of King Jesus in Memphis to the ends of the earth. But there's this key phrase that's the heart of all that, you could summarize our mission as this, to see people deeply transformed. To see people deeply transformed. What do the prophets have to say about deep transformation? All right, that's where we're going from for today. But I'm also aware that I'm beginning a series on the prophets on Martin Luther King uh, weekend. And I, I think that's somewhat fitting. Um, King, in one of the speeches I was reading this week, he had this really amazing reflection on the difference between like external and internal uh, transformation. And what King argued is that heart change, what he called agape love, I don't know where he got that idea, <laughs> but love was actually what our, our culture needed. And, and yet, he says, but still, laws are, are so important. External, the visible, is so important. Here's one way he said that. He says, certainly, if the problem is to be solved, then in the final sense, hearts must be changed. Religion must play a great role in changing the heart. But we must go on to say that while it may be true that morality cannot be legislated, behavior can be re regulated. It may be true that the law cannot change the heart, but it can restrain the heartless. It may be true that the law cannot make a man love me, but it can keep him from lynching me. And I think that's pretty important also. So it's, it's just fascinating how he's holding the two tensions that we're looking at today together. Today, I want to dive into the internal and external realities of transformation that we're really after, especially in a religious sense. I was listening to a woman who was at a Harvard counseling class. The Harvard counseling class did this case study where they kind of revealed that somebody had like deep-seated hatred that they were previously unaware of for their mom and dad. It was like this great case study. And then at the end of the case study, one of the students raises her hand. She's the author of this book. And she says, okay, but how do you get him to forgive his father and mother? And they were like, what do you mean? <laughs> like, that's not what we're here to do. He says, if you want forgiveness from the heart, you have to go to a different department. Th there's something that only the church is entrusted with in our cultural moment. That our culture at large is in desperate need of. And that thing is deeply transformed people whose hearts are made whole in brand new ways to go and do it in durable, loving, gentle ways. So let's, let's walk through this in three points. We're going to start with attention. The first point today is our need for transformation. Our need for transformation. Guys, it's not all alliteration, but it's a little alliteration. The second one is going to be the nature of transformation. And then third, the power. Our need, the nature, and the power of transformation. We're going to start out at the beginning of Jeremiah. All right, Jeremiah chapter 1. It's probably been a while since you were working your way through Jeremiah. Did you know Jeremiah is the longest book in the Bible by word count? Psalms may have 150 psalms in it, but Jeremiah's got more words. Jeremiah is a beast of a book. It's hard to understand. At the end of Jeremiah's long life, one of his kind of apprentices, a guy named Baruch, put it together. He took sermons, he took prayers, he took poetry, 
And then he sort of ordered it all. And today we're going to look at the very center, the most important thing that he looked at. But we're going to start right here at the beginning. He says, this is the words of Jeremiah, son of Hilkiah, one of the priests at Anatote in the territory of Benjamin. The word of the Lord came to him in the 13th year of the reign of Josiah, king of, son of Ammon, king of Judah, and through the reign of Jehoiakim, son of jo- Josiah, king of Judah, down to the fifth month of the 11th year of Zedekiah, son of Josiah, king of, you still with me, when the people of Jerusalem went into exile. Now, the reason I want to start here is because Jeremiah starts with himself. All of this is just biographical. He's like, I'm a little about myself. And his big point here, and it's, it's in all of these phrases, is that I'm a man in need of transformation. Let me tell you a little background. So the first phrase, he says, I want you to know I'm one of the priests. We're from the priests at Anatote. What he's saying is, it's under the, under the words, but he's saying, I come from the priestly line that backed the wrong guy. Remember David's king, David's kingdom is about to be in, in disarray because he has multiple sons by all these different women. Who's going to become king? Jeremiah comes from the priest that backed Adonijah rather than Solomon. They were, they were making political power plays with the priesthood, and they backed the wrong guy. And Jeremiah starts out, first sentence, I come from a people who didn't know the will of God. I come from a people who backed the wrong man. I came from a people who did political power plays. My family is broken. Second thing he shows is that not only is my family broken, but my, my time, my people, my nation, we're broken. He says, he reigned and he, he prophesied in the reign of Josiah, king of Ammon, king of Judah. What this is saying is that Jeremiah was born in the reign of the most wicked king that Judah had ever had. His name was Manasseh. Manasseh is the one who went after child sacrifices, who just was pursuing idols with everything he had. He, he forgot the law of God. He, the temple wasn't disarray. He is the most wicked king. And he says, that's when I was born, but I came of age during his son, Ammon. Ammon was murdered for all of his rebellion and wickedness, and his son, Josiah, do you remember how old he was? My son, Fletcher, knows. He was eight years old when this little boy became king. My son is eight years old. He's like, I'm not ready to become king. No, you're not, bud. (laughs) But Josiah knew, we'll talk more about this next week. Josiah knew, I don't want to be like my dad and I don't want to be like my granddad. But I don't really know what to do. He he was born in a confused time to a broken people and a broken history and a broken culture. The third piece that we see here is that he, he prophesied from his whole life, generations, all the way until when the people of Jerusalem went into exile, when the people of Jerusalem went into exile. And so his family is broken. His his ancestry is broken. But here he looks around the world and he says, but really the whole world is broken. You see, he saw Babylon, one of the most corrupt kingdoms the world has ever seen. He saw Babylon come into his hometown and murder, and rape, and pillage, and burn, and destroy, and then cart them off to slavery. He was one of the guys that got taken. And yes, Jeremiah, his whole message is like God's, he's going to judge if you don't turn. And then they don't turn, and so he judges. 
And then the justice that God brings is somehow even more unjust. He looks at Babylon, he's like, you guys are just as much a part of the problem. Egypt and Moab and Babylon, you're all broken. My family's broken, my people are broken, but you're broken too. But then what he says is, but I'm broken. Look at this. The word of the Lord came to me saying, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Mothers, if you've got a baby in the womb today, just praise God. Isn't this amazing? Before you were born, I set you apart. I appointed you as a prophet to the nations. This is so cool. He's like, this son of the priest from a, a broken people and a broken family, he's like, I got something special for you. And Jeremiah's like, no, you don't. <laughs> Alas, sovereign Lord, I said, I don't know how to speak, and I'm too young. I don't have what it takes. I was reading Eugene Peterson. He has this really great book on Jeremiah. And he says, if we look at ourselves and are absolutely honest, we are always inadequate. Of course, we're not always honest. We fudge and cheat on the test. We cover a bit here. We bluff a bit there. We pretend to be more sure than we are. Life, in fact, is too much for us. The business of living in awareness and response to God in attentive love to the people with us and in reverent appreciation of the world around, it exceeds our capacities. We aren't smart enough. We don't have enough energy. We can't concentrate adequately. We are apathetic, slouching and slovenly. Not all the time, to be sure. We have spurts, but then we slip back. Jeremiah knew it all from the inside, Peterson says. The heart is hopelessly dark and deceitful, a puzzle that no one can figure out. Jeremiah knows this by looking at the world. He knows this by looking at his family, but he knows it by looking at his heart. And he says we're in desperate need of transformation. Now, somebody here may be thinking, that's a really pessimistic view of human nature. And I can't argue with you. That is a pretty pessimistic view of human nature. But give me one example of someone who could kind of defeat the argument. Okay, okay, Marcus. Yes, Jesus. And that's sort of the point. We'll end up there at some point. We are all a testament to this reality of the deceitfulness of the brokenness of hearts. A few years ago, there's this philosopher, um, Joseph Needleman. He wrote a book called Why Can't We Be Good? And the whole book is just essentially an exploration of, at this point, we would know how to be good. Education alone isn't going to solve this problem. It's not, a, it's not a knowledge problem. We know what to do. We just can't do it. We don't need more education. We don't just need more psychology. We are broken in a deep, deep level. So Jeremiah, he, he casts this picture. He says, I'm going to be a prophet. I, I'm not ready, but the Lord said to me, do not say I'm too young. You must go to everyone I send you and say whatever I command you. Do not be afraid of them, for I am with you and will rescue you, declares the Lord. Now, that is a calling you do not want to hear. It's like, what do you, that rescue part, what's going to happen to me exactly? <laughs> Does that mean I, I end up in, in prison? He's like, yes. Does that mean I end up beaten? Yes. Does that mean I end up rejected? All of that, yes. But don't worry. I'm with you. What a calling. And then the Lord reached out his hand and he touched my mouth and he said to me, I've put my words in your mouth. See, today I appoint you over nations and kingdoms to uproot and tear down, to destroy and overthrow, to build and to plant. This is the work of deconstruction 
and reconstruction. And he entrusted it to the prophet. Let's look at Jeremiah 2. Jesselyn, thank you. Jesselyn is probably downstairs. Anyway, Jesselyn, wherever you are, on the iTunes recording podcast, thank you for your reflection at the table on Jeremiah 2. Can we go a little more into Jeremiah 2? Jeremiah says, you have two sins, right? The first one is they've forsaken me, the spring of living water, and then the second, they've dug their own cisterns. But this uh, Christopher Wright in his commentary on Jeremiah, he's like, this is basically stupidity and futility. That's the accusation of Jeremiah, stupidity and futility. Stupidity because agriculturally, it makes no sense to dam up your spring and to build a cistern instead. This is stupid. But it's also futile. It doesn't actually do any good. Now, picture a cistern. You know cistern. But where is the cistern? It's in the ground, right? Uh, y'all know I like Nate Bargatze, comedian. He's like, oh, you discover how hard it is to dig a hole. Because somebody is going to have to finish this joke. I'm butchering it already. He says, it's the, like uh, the guy who murders someone is trying to bury them in the ground. He's like, you still see the hand? He's like, just put some leaves over it. You discover how hard it is to dig a hole when the most important hole of your life, you can't even finish it. But this, this is a cistern, gallons and gallons and hundreds of gallons of water that you have to dig into the rock. Meanwhile, there's a stream over here. And as you're digging, 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 you finally complete the project and you realize there's a crack in it and it's not ever going to hold water. He says, this is what you're doing with the idolatry. There's a heart problem here. You're, you're thirsty. But then you're pursuing it in unquenchable ways. And I think our culture is really thirsty for transcendence. We're, we're thirsty for transcendence. This is Robert Mulholland in his book, An Invitation to a Journey. He says that some people are pursuing this with new age spirituality. He says, we're seeing, this is in the 90s, by the way, we're seeing this rise in like Hinduism and Buddhism, and people are just trying to take things from especially pagan religions that are very earthy. He says, we're, we're seeing it in drug-induced kind of chemical ways where people are searching for transcendence. We see it in the sage and the crystals. It's just like people want transcendence, but they're only looking within the imminent frame. They're only looking in this world. We have people who are pretending to go into big fantasy worlds on Netflix or Amazon or video games. And because we're searching, we're thirsty for transcendence, but we're looking in all the wrong places. He says, this consumer society, our human hearts are hungering for deeper realities in which their fragmented lives can find some measure of wholeness and integrity and deeper experiences with God through which their troubled lives can find meaning, value, purpose, and identity. We're seeing this rise in international travel. It's at an all-time high in, in the data. Why? Because people want something amazing. But every time, it's going to leave you thirsty. At the bottom of the greatest trip you will ever take is a crack. And then you're going to get thirsty again. At the bottom of every pagan religion and earthy way of searching for God, there's a crack. But it's not just like the religious ways of pursuing it. It's every aisle of the human heart. He says, you're turning to idols, and then you, be, you become like them. You become worthless. You're selling yourself short because you're selling God short. These are broken cisterns, and it's costing you. This is right again. The tragedy 
that really broke Jeremiah's heart was that he saw the cost of all this idolatry in the lives of those around him. They were deserting God and going after all kinds of other seductive alternatives, yet none of it satisfied. He saw the huge investment of religious sweat and blood and tears in these cults. The eager longings for success and fertility and prosperity that drove them. And he saw them repeatedly frustrated, for false gods never fail to fail. That's the only thing about false gods you can depend on. Whatever they promise and whatever you pay, the result is the same. Shattering disappointment. But the water I give him will become a spring of life welling up to eternal life, Jesus said. We've got a heart problem when we're looking in the wrong places. I want to look at a couple of the ways that Jeremiah describes his heart problem. And then four kind of applications here. He says, Judah's sin is engraved, it's in, an etching tool. It's engraved with an iron tool, inscribed with a flint point on the tablets of the heart. He says, there's things that are just written so deeply. He says, you try to wash them, but it doesn't get the stain out. He says, can a leopard even change its spots? Did you know that phrase came from Jeremiah? It's engraved. It just won't go away. The heart is deceitful above all things. It's beyond cure. Who can understand it? Over and over and over, he uses this phrase. He says, like, I wish that you would turn to me with your whole heart, but instead, your heart is stubborn and evil. You're just stuck. And again, you're like, well, this is really dark. It's kind of pessimistic. I think people are generally good. It's like, it's not to say there's not good in people. Everyone is made in the image of God and gloriously endowed with these gracious gifts of God. And yet, all of us have seen them turn so I want to, will you say this fast with me? Hard to see heart disease. Hard to see heart disease. I, I wrote that in my office and I was just giggling for like five minutes. And I was like, this is so stupid. But I couldn't lose it. It's still in, I wrote it into the PowerPoint. Hard to see heart disease. Hard to see heart disease. It's, it's good. It's not good. I know that. It is very good. No, Marcus. Anytime me and Marcus are on an island together, it's like we're just two, two pun-loving guys over here. So, What I want to search for is the parts of our hearts where it's like, I wasn't sure that was there. Now, there's stuff in your heart where you're like, I know that's there. That doesn't need to be, that's not what I'm talking about today. I'm talking about heart to see heart disease. And the first one of the heart to see heart disease is idolatry. The anxious heart, just did a great job on this, but here's kind of Luther's summary. Uh, an idol is anything we look to more than we look to Christ for our sense of acceptability or joy or significance or hope. When you want to be somebody, what do you look to? If you look more to something than to Christ, that's idolatry, Luther basically says. It's something we adore or serve or rely on with our whole life and heart. In general, idols can be good things, family, achievement, work and career, romance, talent, etc. Even gospel ministry. And then we turn these into ultimate things to give us the joy that we really are thirsty for. And then they drive us into the ground because we can't have them. And a sure sign, this is Keller's summary, a sure sign of the presence of idolatry is inordinate anxiety, anger, or discouragement when our idols are thwarted. So if we lose a good thing, it makes us sad, but if we lose an idol, it devastates us. So if you want to do a little spiritual angiogram to check your heart for the heart disease, heart disease, 
One of the things you have to look for is anxiety and anger and just crushing defeat. If you're crushed by something when you don't have it, and you may think, well, I've never not had it. I've always been good enough to get it. Life (laughs) is longer than you think. Just wait. The second heart to see heart disease is apathy. So if, if the first one is about thinking, I have to have this, the second one is about the things we know we don't have to have. These are almost two opposites. The first one is you, you pursue it with everything you've got, and the second one is you just fill it up because it's blah. It's the numbed heart. This is the Netflix heart, right? This is, this is the heart that's just like, I know this is empty and unfulfilling, and yet I'm going to spend, you know, this month, you can, you can watch six series on streaming devices and not read six chapters and not even notice. Because the thirst and the hunger in your heart's just filled up on lesser things. One author on, in his book on fasting, he says, the greatest enemy of hunger for God is not poison, but apple pie. It's not the banquet of the wicked that doles our appetites for heaven, but endless nibbling at the table of the world. It's not the X-rated video. You already know that one. That one's not hard to see. But the primetime dribble of triviality we drink in every night. For all the ill that Satan can do, when God describes what keeps us from the banquet table of his love, it's a piece of land. It's a yoke of oxen. It's a wife. The greatest adversary of love to God is not his enemies, but his gifts. And the most deadly appetites are not for the poison of evil, but for the simple pleasures of earth. For when these replace an appetite for God himself, the idolatry is scarcely recognizable and almost incurable. Do you see the difference between idolatry and apathy? One is I have to have it, and the other one is I clearly don't have to have it, and I'm filled up on it. Both destroy your hunger for God. The third hard to see heart disease is bitterness. This is the wounded heart. And if the first two are about the things that I'm pursuing, the second two, number three and four, are about the things that were put there by other people. Some of the crap in our hearts didn't start with you. Henry Nowen says, nobody escapes being wounded. We're all wounded people, whether physically, emotionally, mentally, or spiritually. But another preacher says, if we don't deal with our own baggage and our own hurt, if we don't walk into our wounds and discover what's really happening there, we'll end up passing that pain on to someone else. He says, for fathers in particular, in his book, The Intentional Father, this holds true. If we don't transform the pain we experience to sons, we will pass that pain on to our sons. This is a hard to see one. It's hard to see because at some point, there can be so much blame rightfully placed on other people who've hurt you. But then at some point, it turns, and the resentful, bitter heart will leak out in the way that you treat other people and the way that you pass on things to the next generation. Our wounds don't dissolve. They resurface later in life as either fate or fortune. Rollheiser says, whatever pain is not transformed is transferred. Steve Cuss says, it's not your fault, but it might be your responsibility. In his book, it didn't start with you, a secular psychologist look at trauma. He says, sometimes pain submerges until it can find a pathway for expression or resolution. That expression is often found in the generations that follow and can resurface as symptoms that are difficult to explain. 
In other words, we're likely to keep repeating our unconscious patterns until we bring them into the light of awareness. He says there is another way besides bitterness. Even secular psychology says you can resolve this. You don't have to pass it on. You don't have to live with the bitterness and anger and the simmering resentment from the things that have happened to you. The Lord himself is saying there is freedom. It is for freedom I have set you free. The Lord can provide healing. Do you know the word for healing in the, in the gospels that Jesus goes around doing? It's the word for therapy. <laughs> he's, he's therapying people. He's putting them back together as whole people, hearts and souls and minds and bodies. And he says, I want to do all of that for you. When we say holistic ministry, we say the whole gospel for the whole person because that's exactly what Jesus is going to do. He's going to do it for the whole world. The wounding, the wounded heart leads to bitterness, but the final heart disease, heart disease is generational sin. Remember, the first two are the things you're pursuing. The second two are things that are kind of done to you. But the difference between three and four is that the wounded heart leaks out in pain, but the blind heart has this pattern that continues. This shows up in Jeremiah. Jeremiah is talking about sour grapes. He's like, the parents eat sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge. I was reading that to Kelsey. She's like, I have no idea what that means. I guess. I've never eaten sour grapes. If you eat sour grapes, there's like this texture that gets on your, almost like a grit. It's like, you ate that. That should be in your mouth, not mine. And it's like, it's passed down. And the children in Jeremiah's day and Ezekiel's day are saying, we don't deserve what's happening to us. And Jeremiah and Ezekiel are both saying, Jeremiah 31, Ezekiel 18, Ezekiel 33. They're saying, that's not how God works. The reason you're suffering the sins of your father is because of the sins themselves carry the consequence. God's not doing this. Your sin is. And it's not only that your sin is, but you kept doing it. It became a pattern. It may have started with them, but you kept it rolling. Jeremiah says, you have behaved more wickedly than your fathers. Jeremiah 16, 12. Israel's willful rebellion, this is Christopher Wright, as we might say, is set in concrete. The practices have become so ingrained and normal that children take them for granted and the people simply will not live without them. They're just blind. They don't even see that it's sin anymore. It is really hard to see generational sin. It's a hard to see heart disease. It's hard to see because it's, it's always been acceptable. It's always been good. If you grew up in a home that does X, it's normal. You can't even see it. If you grow up in a culture, it's the same thing, but especially when you grow up in a home. One author says, forgive me, Father, for my father has sinned. It's like, yes. I've heard stories of young men who log onto the computer as, as teenagers, and they discover that their dad's been looking at porn. And so then they think, well, now I have an excuse. This struggle that I've been carrying, my dad's doing it too, so it's all good here. There's no reason to repent and try to break this cycle. Dad's on my side. Racism and family history, especially as we're thinking of MLK weekend, how much racism has been normalized in family systems because you were raised with grandma and granddad and, and mom and dad who thought one thing. It's hard to see the, the depth of the generational sin that the pattern is, it continues. Pete Scazzaro, he says, Jesus may be in your heart, but grandpa's in your bones. He's like, you're going to have to break some cycles. 
it's time for you to take responsibility for this. That means you have to look at the sins of your fathers and mothers and their idolatry, and then you have to demolish their idols and say, I will not continue this pattern in the next generation. It doesn't have to be an accusation. Man, I was, I was so struck just a few minutes ago, and I don't know if I'm supposed to share this with you. Um, as we're singing, I trust in God. I just had this picture of many of my relatives who have died in the Lord. And for many of them, I had the privilege of preaching at their funerals. But there's something in my heart that has this unhealthy ability to notice what's wrong in somebody. It's a gift and it's a shadow. And I, I know my family well enough to know that they are not perfect people. And yet, I was just overwhelmed by this sense that, like, They are not in the hands of God because of their perfect performance, because of the mercy of God. And if I'm not falling on the trust of God for them or for me, then what else is there? But So it's not a a condemnation of the past generation. We all stand in the grace of God. But it is an identification of the sins of the past generation. And then it's, it's an intentional rejection of those idols. If you're not consciously aware of your brokenness, you won't be able to steward healing for the next generation. You'll pass it on, you'll consider it normal, and so will your sons and daughters. So we have to break down the idols and the dysfunction that our parents built, and they passed on to us, and we have to choose a better way. No amens. All right. So those are the four hard-to-see, hard diseases. And I think these are really why we need transformation. Because some of the stuff in our life, we don't even know it's there until it spills out, or until we see it in our son. And sometimes we don't even know it's there until it fails us, or perhaps we never know it's there because we're so deadened, because our appetites are filled up for other things. We need, we need transformation. All right, second. There's only three today. They're not all that long. Second, the nature of transformation. If, if that is the need, what does it look like? to be transformed? Is it like more more knowledge? Is it more education? Is it more laws? That's sort of that MLK conversation. What's going to do this thing? If the counseling department at Harvard is like, that's a different department, then what is it? Jeremiah's got an answer, and it's a really weird one. Jeremiah 4. Jeremiah says, circumcise yourselves. All right, any volunteers? No, okay. Circumcise yourselves with the Lord. And then he says, circumcise your hearts. It's a super weird metaphor. It didn't start with Jeremiah. In the time of Jeremiah, the king Josiah had somebody cleaning out the temple. And while they were cleaning the temple, they discovered the book of Deuteronomy. At the end of the book of Deuteronomy, there's this amazing chapter, Deuteronomy chapter 30. Deuteronomy 30 is all about after you break the covenant and you're sent off into exile, God is going to circumcise your hearts and he's going to welcome you back in. He's going to do a new thing. And they discover this book. This becomes the bestseller of Jeremiah's generation. Everybody loves what's happening in, in this book. And they use this phrase, circumcise your heart. Now, you know what circumcision is. Circumcision is the sign of the covenant, right? So for males in, in Israel, if you want to be part of the people of God, this is the sign of the covenant. It's like, I prefer the wedding ring personally. But for them, they, they went a different way. Son of covenant, but, but it had so much more symbolism. What it meant was that our, our family, this promise, this covenant is pointing to 
the fulfillment of the seed. And so we need to make a cut on the thing that produces the seed because our great hope is that a Messiah is going to come and rescue us. But it also says in the covenant, the cut is made and it says, do it to me if I break this promise. Cut me off. Cut me off from this people. Cut me off from your promises. This is part of the agreement of circumcision. It's I will be cut off if I do, don't keep my side of the bargain. But what ended up happening is that physically, all the males in Israel were circumcised. But spiritually or internally, none of them were. He says, you made it seem like the external thing that everybody can see, not everybody can see, that some people can see on the outside is what really matters. When what I really want is a heart devoted to me. I want a marriage, not, not a circumcision. So the phrase is circumcise your hearts. Look, he uses it again, Jeremiah 9. He says, Egypt, Judah, Edom, Ammon, Moab, all who live in the wilderness and distant places. He says, the foreign nations, these nations are really uncircumcised. There's no circumcision. And even the whole house of Israel is uncircumcised in heart. He says they're acting just like the world. They, they're spiritually, they're no different. Internally, they're no different. Stephen's great sermon in Acts chapter 7, he uses the same phrase. You stiff-necked people with uncircumcised hearts and ears, you are just like your fathers. You always resist the Holy Spirit. You resist the internal work of the Spirit of God in your life. That's what he's talking about here. So Jeremiah is saying there's three kinds of circumcision. The first one is you're really uncircumcised. You're, you're a pagan. The second one is you're circumcised in flesh. And the third one is, is that you're circumcised in heart. To be circumcised in flesh is just the outer external compliance, but with no heart change. Jeremiah says, your lips are always praising me, but your hearts are far from me. He says, you go to church all the time, temple, 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 but then nothing in your life ever changes. We'll talk more about that next week. So what is the mark of the, of the circumcised heart? The mark of the circumcised heart is what Ezekiel calls a new heart where a new spirit comes to live. Jesus called it being born again of the spirit in John 3. Paul calls it the new self, the person that's transformed by the spirit. Peter calls it the new birth. Jeremiah calls it when the law is written on your hearts. What is it? It's transformation. It's to see people deeply transformed by God's grace. It's obedience. It's the sin that was engraved on our hearts is now transcribed in a new way and written in a new way with obedience. Right. He says the heart in Hebrew is not so much the seat of the emotions, but rather the will. The heart is where you do your thinking, your choosing, your deciding. It's the inner organ that shapes the outer direction and intentions in your life. Jeremiah's had a lot to say in, about the heart and all these senses. And, and that, says God, is where he will put his law. What is promised is a new ability from within to live in accordance with the essence of the law God has given. It's obedience to the law. He said, I'm going to change you into people who actually do this. You need a new heart. It's broken, it's deceitful, it's stubborn, it's hard. And I'm going to give you a new heart to obey me. And so he says, circumcise your hearts. But here's the problem. He's like, how do we do that? How do we get the new heart? Third, real quick here, and then I want to do an exercise. Actually, let's just do the exercise. Look under your, your seat, please. 
And there's a page, full page, that says heart check at the top. And if you don't have one, there's probably one underneath the seat in front of you or around. Everybody needs one of these. And if you don't have one, we can get you one. Each person. And can you just take, we're going to take actually like five or ten minutes to just sit here in silence and to work through this. Mark Potter, could you just put on some instrumental music? Is that possible? If it's not, that's fine. What I want you to do is for every one, one through nine, can you just circle the left side or the right side? Circle a number for each set. And then can you draw a star to those you feel are especially revealing of your heart? After the service is over, you're just going to fold this up, put it in your pocket. This isn't something I'm going to ask you to circle up and share in just a minute. But I'm asking, would you seek the Lord right now? And have him reveal something to you about the heart disease, heart disease that's in there. About the circumcision in flesh and the circumcision in heart that you really need. Let me pray as you, you start this. Holy God, shine your light on our hearts. Show us where we're trusting in our own strength instead of trusting in you. Would you illuminate? Would you lead us? Would you reveal to us? God, we know that we can be moralistic and focused on only things that other people see and things on the outside. We can be so focused on our performance that we lose sight of the gift of grace that you have in Jesus Christ. Lord, as we search here, would you lead us, give us direction for this year and the transformation that you want us to pursue. For your kingdom and glory, amen. Would you take a few minutes? Circle and star.
you finish, just go to the Lord in prayer and ask for his help on these things. Mark, you can leave that on. Here's what I want to tell you, though. Some of, man, when I see that list, there's a few things that just come alive in my heart of conviction. They, they feel like somebody has been watching me, and it's just they've got me pegged on a couple of these. They know the idol of my heart or that cistern that I keep going back to. And then at the same time, there's other areas where I'm like, I am so glad that the Lord has led me into this place where I, I was there and I'm not anymore. And even there, there's a temptation for me to turn into that moralism and that external measures of progress. And here's the good news, is that we know we have a need for transformation. And we know that this tra the deep transformation of our hearts that's coming, that we've got to have it. But how? The message of Jeremiah 31 is that it comes because God is doing something in your heart, not because you are. God says, I'm going to put my heart I'm going to put my, my law in their hearts. I'm going to write it. They will come to know me. This isn't going to be like the covenant that came before. This is going to be a new thing. I, I'm, I'm going to do a work inside of you. He says, I'm going to give you the heart. Jeremiah 24, verse 7. You, you don't even have the capacity to make your own heart. He says, I'm going to give it for you. The obedience that we have is because he gave us the new heart, not for the new heart. And so if you're like, I don't fully have it yet, just ask God for it. He's the only one who can give it to you. You can't make your own heart new, but he can. And he says, I'm going to put my spirit in people who are asking for it. And some of you are like, well, I don't know if I've ever asked for it. Ask for it today then. Some of you are hesitant because you don't know if this is, if this is all for you, you know, this church thing or, or God or Jesus. Maybe it was for your mom or for your dad and you're still whining. That's fine. But when you're ready, he's got a new heart for you to get you out of that heart to see heart disease that you're stuck in. And here's how it comes. Jeremy 30, it says that the, the heart that's there, he says, I'm going to give you a new heart. I'm going to make it, I'm going to make it clean. I'm going to wash it because I'm going to take the curse that was on it because of the covenant that you broke and I'm going to put that curse on top of your enemy. And of course, instead of putting it on some outside enemy, God comes and becomes the enemy of his own people. And it says that Jesus became the curse to rescue us from the curse of the law. He has redeemed us from the curse by becoming the curse. He's become the enemy of God, enduring it so that he can give the great gift. I was thinking of a reflection I got from John Tyson. He's talking about the Lord of the Flies. You know Beelzebub. Beelzebub is the Lord of the Flies. And where you're hurt and where you're wounded, flies are drawn to the wounds. 
It's this attraction of demonic activity, of spiritual accusation, where God wants to, where the evil one wants to destroy. Where you're wounded, he's coming, and he's coming for you. But there's another Lord of the Flies that we read of in Scripture. They, they think that Lord of the Flies, Beelzebub, it, it comes from this, this Baal, this false god, the, the god of Ekron. The god of the flies? Gross. They actually think Israel has been playing with his name. He's probably the Lord of the heavens, Beelzebub. Not Lord of the flies, Lord of the heavens. But it's because they knew the true Lord of the heavens that was there. And the good news of Jesus is that he became our enemy so that we could become a friend of God. That he became the curse so that we could receive the blessing of God. The good news of Jesus is that he is also drawn to your wounds. That he wants to take the things that have happened, that have happened by you and, and to you. And he wants to put those back together and heal that heart. I shared this at our, our prayer retreat. This is from Thomas Goodwin, an old Puritan. He says, Christ's own joy and comfort and happiness and glory are increased and enlarged by his showing grace and mercy, in pardoning, in relieving and comforting the members here on earth. In other words, Christ loves to help broken people and broken hearts. You may be reluctant to give Christ your brokenness, to give him your sin. You think he wouldn't want anything to do with it. No, there's nothing he loves more. That's what his mercy means. In Latin, the word mercy is somebody who extends his heart to the miserable. Jesus is merciful. He comes alive when his heart is extended to the miserable. One author says his joy increases to the degree that sick people come to him for help and healing. It's, it's like a, a missionary, a, a doctor who goes out to a foreign field and he has the medicine that will heal, heal the people. And those people say, I don't trust him. I don't want anything to do with them. And then finally, someone comes to him for medicine. For the first time, they break down the wall and he gives them the medicine and they are healed. How do you think the doctor feels? He says, this is what I came here for. I came here so that you could take this and give life. There's nothing I want more than to give you this healing. So come to him. Lord of the flies, Lord of the heavens, come to him. He came to heal. He went down into the horror of death and he plunged out the other side in order to provide a limitless supply of mercy and grace to his people. So when you come to Christ for his mercy and love and help in your anguish and perplexity and sinfulness, your apathy and your idolatry and your woundedness and your blindness, you are going with the flow of his deepest wishes, not against them. Could you just close your eyes and let's pray. Pray about these things. Holy God, search us. We are asking for your loving conviction. Would you gently and tenderly reveal, would you shine a light on those hard-to-see heart diseases? Would you show us which of the idols that we, we tend to rely on? Would you show us which of the waste of time apathies that we're, we're spending our life on? Would you show us the wounds that we carry and we haven't resolved? Would you show us those generational patterns God, we're asking for illumination. Show us. For those today who are concealing, Lord, would you convict instead? The ones who are afraid to give it to you, afraid to give it to someone else, would you show them in your gentleness and love that you are there to receive it? Would you show those wounded today that there is hope? 
that you are tender and kind. Which, Lord, for those who are turning from idols today, would you break them and destroy them and yet spare the worshiper at its, at its altar? Would you rescue us from our own performance, from man-made identities? Would you make us come alive in our apathy? Would you awaken our hearts and our church? Would you give us a hunger and a thirst today? Would you give us a hunger and a thirst this year so that we could become a house of prayer for all nations? Lord, tend to our wounds. Resolve it. Give freedom. Lord Christ, share who we are because of your great gift, not who someone made us to feel like. May our wounds not define us. May the wounds of Christ define us. Lord God, would you help us as we break ties? Would you give us the courage to take responsibility and and stop the blame and to repent of our father's and mother's sins? Would you make us into a church of transformed people who are hungering for you, God? Lord, we want to become a house of prayer for all nations. And we know it has to start here in our hearts. That before you're going to do a thing with Oikos in this city, you've got to do a thing with us in our hearts. But God, we want you to do a thing with Oikos in this city. And so would you allow us to be a hub, a vehicle, a beacon of, of hope and transformation. A place ready to receive sinners. A place of forgiveness and healing. A place where freedom is found because identity is discovered in Christ, not ourselves. God, we don't want to just be a house of prayer for Memphis. We want to be a house of prayer for all nations. Would you transform us into a generous, courageous, sent people who are ready to go and to share? Who start here, start small, start in the neighborhood, start on the block, start with friends, start at work. But with an eye towards your global kingdom. God, we give you our sin. And we receive from you the gift of your spirit, that new heart, that new birth, that transformation. And we praise you in the grace of Jesus Christ. Glory be to God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and will be forever, world without end. Amen.